Psalm, um, Psalm 39, Dylan Lamictet, is a text I have to confess I never really looked at before a few months ago, and I started kind of spending a lot of time on it, and I find it just sort of like in many ways both extremely moving, deeply elusive as to sort of where it's quote-unquote supposed to leave us, and just literarily just a really interesting text. So I thought, this is the first time I've ever taught it, I thought we would sort of try to walk through it together, you know, really think about it a little bit line by line, and then maybe kind of zoom out and talk about how it might, whether it might function in a religious person's life, universe. Um, what, you, you don't think it can? You don't can't find it? Do we have any? Yes. 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 Okay. Blue section. So here's, here's what I would like to do, just as a way of bringing us all to the conversation, let's listen to the text being read out loud. Out loud. So we'd love like somebody to read the Hebrew, um, and someone else to, you know, correspondingly read the English, you know, back to back. Um, I think we should do it verse by verse. I've been thinking about that all day. <laughs> Honestly, I know it's bizarre, but I've been thinking about that. What's the best way to do it? Exactly. So, so I can do the Hebrew. Great. Do the Hebrew and Audrey, maybe you want to do the English? Is that okay? Okay. Did you want to say something? Oh, I just wanted to know if there was an extra copy because I don't have a Bible. Aha. You can have this. I might. Oh. I resolved I would watch my step, lest I offend by my speech. Do you want me to read the translation or translate it? I think I'll read the translation okay. for now, okay? I would keep my mouth muzzled while the wicked man was in my presence. I was dumb, silent, I was very still while my pain was intense. My mind was in a rage, my thoughts were all aflame. I spoke out. Tell me, O Lord, what my term is, what is the measure of my days? I would know how fleeting my life is. You have made my life just handbreadths long, its span is as nothing in your sight. No man endures any longer than a breath. Ach, Betzalem, et Kalech ish, ach, Hevel, Yechamayon, it bore veloyede min ospa. Man walks about as a mere shadow. Mere futility is his hustle and bustle, amassing and not knowing who will gather him. Va'atam, makaviti Adonai, to'ti l'chahi. What then can I count on, O Lord? In you, my hope lies. Mikopesha'ai chitzeleni, kherpat naval al tisimeni. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the butt of the benighted. Nelamti lo et papi, hi ata asita. 
I am dumb, I do not speak up, for it is your doing. Take your plague, take away your plague from me, I perish from your blows. You chastise a man with punishment for his sin, consuming like a moth what he, what he treasures. No man is more than a breath, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry, do not disregard my tears. For like all my forebears, I am an alien, resident with you. Look away from me that I may recover before I pass away and on. That's a light one. Remember what I said yesterday, was it yesterday or... or the other night, you know, yeah. there's no gamzu tova in Sefer Tehillim. There's none of this sort of like, oh yeah, this is good, that is good, everything is good, everything God does is for the best. I mean, this is really laying it right out there. Um, so far, and you know, spent a lot of time on Tehillim in the last few years, this is the most intense individual psalm of protest that I've seen. I mean, Psalm 44, some of you have studied with me over the years, is the most dramatic psalm of collective anger. Some Protestant scholars refer to that as the collective book of Job. Um, but this psalm is just wild. Um, and maybe by way of introduction, before we walk through it verse by verse, so again, we're gonna, I'm going to say a few things. We're going to read it verse by verse carefully, and then we'll kind of zoom out and talk about it a little bit. I want to say that something that I often find helpful when I find a text really elusive is to go and read um, either traditional Parshanim or modern scholars and discover that, lo and behold, they're confused by it too. Um, so, um, so two, I was reading two um, kind of hardcore academic Christian scholars, and these are their respective assessments of where this psalm ends up. Hans Joachim Krauss, a very famous German sword critic, right? The psalm breaks off in despair. It is plunged into darkness without parallel. Peter Craigie. The psalmist has regained his perspective on the transitory nature of human life, and can face death with calmness. That's the first one is usually referred to as H.J. Kraus. Kraus. <laughs> um, now, I should just say, I mean, just to make my thoughts on the table, I find, I find Craigie's reading bizarre. The notion that the psalm ends with calmness is very odd to me, right? I'm not sure that you have to assume that it ends in despair, but the alternative can't be calmness. Look away from me. Especially when we know how much in biblical texts, was that for me? Oh, thank you so much. The aspiration is actually look at me, yeah. right? Look away from me. It's such a conscious subversion. It's like asking for hester panim. Whereas, right, the classic movement is hester panim and the hiding of the face is asking God's face to return. Mm -hmm. So saying that it's calmness, that's very strange. Um, Robert Alter, in his um, introduction to biblical poetry, the art of biblical poetry, I think captures the texture of this very powerfully in that 
he talks about how the speaker in this psalm flounders in a world of radical ambiguities, right? In his language, I'm going to read this to you because it's just really interesting, where the antithetical values of speech and silence, existence and, ex and extinction, perhaps even innocence and transgression, thank you, have been brought dangerously close together. The rapid swings between oppositions in the poem are dictated by a psychological dialectic in the speaker. That, I have to say, strikes me as a much richer reading of what might be happening in the psalm than the, here's the sort of like mono-vocal, this is what the text is saying, right? I, I mean, in general, as you know, probably to a fault resistant to those kind of readings of any biblical text. But in this case, it seems especially clear. Um, it's interesting to note, if only in passing, that there are some interesting allusions to, I want to say, or at very least echoes of Kohelet, mm -hmm. right? Especially around the notion of a person labors and does not know who will inherit his labor. That, um, I, well, maybe we'll get talk about more when we read that Pasuk again, is like, you know, uh, classic Kohelet language. It's one of the sources of Kohelet's despair. You know, I work my whole life, I accumulate things, and I don't know whether the person who's going to inherit them is a scoundrel or, or what. So that seems to be either playing with Kohelet or something, or drawing on something common. Um, something about this psalm, as in many psalms, that is worth noticing, and it's something that I, I, over time I've come to find more and more moving as opposed to frustrating the way I found it at first, is that the nature of this person's suffering is actually never stated. And one of the things that many people, historians of spirituality, have noted this, is that because Sefer Tehillim so rarely actually concretely identifies the predicament of the person praying, that is one of the things that has allowed so many people, Jewish and Christian, in so many places, to actually see themselves inside the text. The very non-specificity is part of what makes it accessible. More recently, some scholars, Patrick Miller, a very prominent um, uh, kind of liberal Protestant scholar of the Hebrew Bible, has sort of argued that, that was, that's not just a kind of accidental effect, that that's part of the artistry of Sefer Tehillim, that it was in part created and written for the situation to be elusive and therefore accessible. You could say it in a hospital, you could say it after your divorce, you could say it after your illness, you could say it in, right? And that, that actually, he thinks, is actually, because it's so prevalent, he thinks it's actually part of the very artistry of the text. It's an interesting way to think about it. Audrey, you're going to say something. I, just, I remember learning that perhaps, or some scholars think, I don't know which scholars, that some of the Tehillim at least were composed for um, specific purposes, uh, like for an individual or for a family or for, you know, for a particular moment, but that there were like, do you, do you know, have you heard any scholarship about that they were, you, that they were utilized for specific purposes, but actually not composed in a specific way, um, so that they could be, you know, almost like a, a, a booklet of sort of non-specific prayers that you would find in a hospital. Um, so I, I have not seen that in Psalm scholarship. I'd be interested if you can ever recover yeah, where you got yeah. that, because I've, you know, I've been spending a lot of time on academic scholarship until I haven't seen that yet, although as okay. some of you might know, the academic scholarship in Tehillim is itself like... You could fill an Amazon warehouse just on scholarly books on Sefer Tillam. It's really crazy. Um, also, in a different way, with certain kinds of traditional parshanut, but more so, I mean, it's just an endless of the making of commentaries on Tehillim. There is no end. Um, that was an attempt at humor, unsuccessful at that. But okay, now I, I want to just say one last thing by way of introduction to this. That is, I, I, I think, really important to these texts, which is um, the vision of 
what a human being is in the presence of God that enables a speaker to genuinely speak and not to speak just in the language of piety or, or you know, God forbid, platitude, but in the language of raw, unbridled honesty. Um, you know, um, Brueggemann you know, calls this, in a famous essay of his called The Costly Loss of Lament, in which he talks about the spiritual consequences of we don't do that anymore, right? He talked to, he's talking about a Christian setting, but it applies to Jewish settings as well. You know, he says that one of the things that's interesting is um, that these psalms ask for ego strength in the presence of God. That it's not about, oh God, I'm suffering so much, I'm going to lie down on the floor and say, you know, it's all up to you, I'm okay with it. That these psalms are very different from that. It's another way of talking about what I call the, the rejection of the Gamzula Tovah theology, or the anticipatory rejection of it, right? Because that comes later. Um, yeah. Just quickly, I noticed that when we finished reading it, most psalms are structured where the problem is stated in the very, even just the last verse, is, but I'm in connection with you, God, so everything's going to be okay. And so this doesn't read like most lament psalms, and I'm curious yes. about that. Right, so, so I think... And so maybe it got cut well, off, I don't know. One of the things that I... So I mentioned Psalm 44 before. One of the things I find interesting about Psalm 44, as well as about this psalm, is it, on the one hand, is a great representative of the genre, and on the other hand, in a way that depends on us being familiar with the genre, it breaks the genre yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, as I said, even upstairs, right, the notion of the psalm ending by saying, so why don't you leave me alone, yeah. is an amazing, as opposed to, why don't you take me back and feel me, which is really not that. It's actually leave me alone so that I can heal, whatever avliga means, which is a very hard word in biblical Hebrew. But, so yes, I think you're on to the way, I mean, texts, I mean, you know, it's funny, um, Ruben Kielman says about liturgy in his scholarship, and it's something that those of you who have studied liturgy with Ellie um, see that this has become a major part of his approach, is that the meaning of liturgical texts exists not in the text, but between them. That that's how intertextuality works. The difference between Kielman's approach and Ellie's, and not surprisingly, I prefer Ellie's in light of what I said before, is that Kielman thinks there's kind of a meaning between the text. And Ellie thinks that the meaning of the text is to talk to each other, and it's much more open-ended, and less, you know, there's not an answer exactly. There's a kind of a dialogue that's created. I think that's often true about Tehillim as well. And Sefer Tehillim talks to itself all the time, right? The intertextuality of that book is everywhere. And here, I think this psalm is in, I think, is talking to other psalms of lament, mm -hmm. and saying, it doesn't always end good. Sometimes, actually... I finish my prayer and I still feel kind of horrible, right? Not everything is healed in the end. This kind of entertains a kind of rupture and sustains it in a way that many psalms entertain and then resolve, right? It, it seems there's no resolution. Again, if you buy Krauss's reading, uh, I'm sorry, if you buy um, Craigie's reading, he thinks there seems to be resolution. I find it hard to find that in that last pursuit. But well, maybe in a Christian theology. We're suffering at least your reward in the next world. Yeah, but in theory at least, that's not what they're doing in commenting on the Psalms, right? They're not importing later Christian theology. They're actually allowing it to speak on their own. Now, everyone is guilty of, on some level, finding their own theology in text, but, um, except for me. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, just following along this line, and I think this is actually a helpful way of saying it, Clinton McCann, like another Christian who spent his whole life basically writing on Safer Tailing, he comments on this psalm that I think is really interesting, um, that to understand this psalm, so he argues, the fact that the psalmist speaks is of more importance than the content of his speech. Because the opening of the psalm, just to sort of make that point, is 
a psalmist who's trying to control himself because he doesn't want to say anything bad to God or about God, and then it breaks forth out of him, which is just so striking. So, so let's look at this inside together. Yeah, please. There is none that I'm aware of. Um, in general, the psalms of lament have no liturgical use in general. Um, now, you could say that's because you know, Psalms of Lament, by definition, are supposed to be used in specific circumstances. And unless you're in certain of Rabbi Soloveitchik's essays, the theme of which is life is always a massive crisis, you don't have that. No, I mean, that's the theme in some of Soloveitchik's writing. That's his heavy existentialist side. Kind of, you could say almost a kind of, I don't mean this to sound pejorative, melodramatic existentialist side, like, I, you know, traumatized all the time. So given that that's not the usual Jewish way of speaking, and we think of crisis as about moments, so it doesn't become part of a fixed liturgy. The thing that I think is more striking is how few Jews who live inside the world of Torah are aware of the availability and possibility of these psalms. I mean, I have shared with some of you over the years this amazing story that a friend of mine who was the rabbi, um, he was a rabbi in an Orthodox shul. Um, now he's neither a rabbi nor Orthodox nor does he go to shul, but in any case, he was a rabbi of an Orthodox shul. And he told me once, which is really interesting, that there were three occasions over the course of his rabbinate where people came to him having just experienced horribly devastating things, like one woman who had just finally left her husband who had been physically assaulting her, you know, a woman whose husband left her, you know, alone with four kids, like horrible stuff, right? And he said that those were three moments in his rabbinate where he pulled out his time, and the person basically came and said, like, I need, like, find something, I, I need something, right? He said in those moments, he took out his Tanakh, and he put before them a couple of psalms of lament. He said, have you ever seen these before? And he said what was really interesting to him was all three of them in different language said, oh, Rabbi, are you kidding? I don't have a relationship with God where I could say this. You know, and he was like, it was just, for him, he said it was an awakening about, you know, in, in the modern Orthodox world about how many people were sort of from, but not necessarily feeling like they had a relationship with God, right? That, and that kind of woke him up to like, oh, we have the same problems as everybody else in certain ways around that. Um, you know, and, and like, in other words, that you would have to have such a relationship to be able to say, you've hurt me, right? I mean, think about how vulnerable making that really is, right? I mean, I mean, if you think about moments in your own life where someone has hurt you so badly that part of you thinks, I don't even ever want to admit to them how much they hurt me because I would never want to make myself vulnerable again, yeah. right? So to be able to say, to have enough of a relationship with God to say, not only am I hurt, but I'm hurt by you, mm -hmm. right? Is a kind of vulnerable, depends on a kind of relationality and vulnerability that people don't have. That's so, I think that so few contemporary Jews have. I think Haredim are the only Jews that where this is like, many people still talk like this. Most modernized Jews, and this is like maybe a different year for a different year, how and why that <laughs> happened, right? Which is a lot we can talk about in contemporary philosophy, in contemporary social, sociology, like why are Jews like the most secularized in the secular world? It's, it's a fascinating discussion. But so one of the reasons I'm studying this text and presenting it to you is like, I think it's interesting to think about like, do you feel you could pray these words, right? And, you know, is there a way for us to re-enter these words? And what's the relationship between studying these words and praying them? Albert, are you resisting? Oh, oh, sorry. Just very quickly, I've, uh, every year I run a lament writing workshop hmm. and get people to write their own laments and teach them the form. And are they addressed to God? They're just lament of things you cannot change in your life. And it is a powerful, powerful thing to get people to lament that which will never be the way they had hoped. It's 
I'm getting chills talking about it. So, so it's very interesting. Can I, I just want to sort of, if I could, just to yeah. sort of, if I can use what you just said for a minute. What you said is extremely moving, and yet I find it really interesting that even when we try to do lament with people, we don't address it anywhere. It's a first step. It's just right. No, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying I think it is in itself really interesting, right? When you say to me, what's a lament? So, you know, talk about what can't be changed. As opposed to talk to God about your disappointment and the fact that whatever it might be, right? I think it's really interesting. Yeah, Audrey, Yona, and then we're going to... One is that at RRC in a class uh, taught by Tamara Kamiankowski on Psalms, she had us write a psalm um, in Hebrew and in English. Um, ironically, at RRC, where we don't, where the classical reconstructionist thing is to like, do away with the supernatural God when you address specifically. But anyway, it was an incredible exercise. But does anyone know about the, the book called Flames, Flames to Heaven by Debbie Perlman? Yes. Okay. So this is a book, for those who aren't familiar, that I believe is out of print, although you still can find it, I think, on Amazon, some used copies. I use it constantly. I've used Psalms constantly in pastoral work and chaplaincy, and I've often asked people to look at this contemporary book, which was written by a woman as she was facing cancer, but also she wrote for celebratory occasions in her life. In her life, so there are Psalms of lament in there. There are Psalms of celebration, and um, it's an incredible little book. She did um, unfortunately die of cancer, but um, this book I use again and again as a way to show people that um, and, and to, to help them not fear, maybe trying to get inside the experience of <coughs> writing in this way, whether they write it or speak it. Um, so I highly recommend that um, if you're interested in this kind of thing and working with uh, folks you work with, it's um, people find it very therapeutic, both to be aware of the book, to read the book, and to write, to try the exercise of writing their own song. Mm -hmm. Um, Ian, and I, I came in late, so I don't know if you did an analysis of the song exactly. But what, to answer your question about whether it's comfort, comfortable or somehow uh, accessible, my problem with it is it seems to accept the idea that the suffering is a result of my sins. Good. So I want, I want to talk about this. I, 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 thank you. One of the things I hope we can talk about once we've worked through the psalm is the question of what one does with texts that assume that illness is a consequence of sin in a world where um, almost no one we interact with really thinks that anymore. Meaning, I, I would—I mean, I understand the scenario is not like that. But if I were giving a sheer and safer to Hillen in Hanovich or in the mirror, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not that, I mean, I might actually have a different conversation. But I think in most of the world, the people we interact with, given that that assumption is kind of, let's say, absent or at times like actively rejected, how does one stand inside those words? I think a whole different discussion that maybe we can have at the end, but I, you know, here we're in a very diverse group, theologically and otherwise, is Psalms of Lament really strongly, on some level, conceptually at least, depend on believing in a fully omnipotent God. Right? Because they fault God for, as it were, mismanaging the world. Something that I've talked about with, when I've taught in, in settings of exclusively certain kinds of liberal rabbis, reform rabbis, reconstruction rabbis, many of whom do not have a theology like that. So I have a conversation, well, how do you stand inside of the I voice in a text like this? Or do you? Right? Um, so there are, there are many obstacles we can talk about. 
right? So let's try to understand the text right now for a minute on its own terms, and then kind of have those conversations, mm -hmm. okay? okay? So Pasuk Aleph, okay? Anyone want to just like read the Hebrew now again, and then I will kind of play with it a little bit? Don, can I, are you game doing that? Is that okay? Great. All the way through? No, Pasuk by Pasuk. Okay, Yedutun, for whatever it's worth, um, I don't know why I'm saying that. It's actually worth a lot. Was a, a, a famous temple musician um, who is known as one of the three um, music leaders in the temple in the time of David and Shlomo. For that, I can give you references in Divrei and Nim Aleph, which is where we know that from. Um, and he's one of the lead temple singers. Those of you who are interested in more academic things, you should note the word with David is a famously elusive word in Sefer Tehillim. It's really not clear what it was intended to mean. The, the, a certain kind of very traditional reading assumes that it means by David. Most academic types think it certainly did, did not, it was not intended to convey that. It means something like, here's some possibilities off the top of my head, in the spirit of David, in the style which David wrote for the Davidic king. Um, those are the three biggest ones. Um, there are probably others. You know, the whole question of how invested many traditional thinkers really were in David being the author of Tehillim is a fascinating question that I'd like to actually research at some point. It's not like Moshe writing the Torah. It's just not, right? I mean, it, so that's not to say that it didn't matter to a lot of people and doesn't still matter to a lot of people, but it's, 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 there's more like movement in that question in the Masorah, especially with Psalms that seem really bizarre to put in David's mouth, like Al Naharot Babel. Which is a strange, right? And the, again, if you, it, as I talked about on the first night, those of you here, like, if you believe in a certain notion of Nivuah and Ruach HaKodesh, you can, right, you can say. But it has struck many people as sort of odd to imagine that, you know, it's all David imagining these scenarios far into the future. And Le David might simply mean, you know, in the way that David wrote or something like that. Um, okay, um, let's read Sukim Bet Tehei and then talk about them, okay? Sorry, stop it for sport. Forgive me for interrupting you. Um, so, right, the beginning, right, is essentially... Um, the concern, lest the psalmist sin by the way he speaks, right? Which I assume means I was afraid of or hesitant about expressing my anger about what God has done to me. Um, and if you want, where am I getting that or why that seem clear to me is also from verse 10, where he says in this very emphatic way, Ki ata asita, you did this to me, right? Um, and then also, the concern lest you provide ammunition to the wicked person, right? So, Amarti Drachai, I resolved I would, you know, be careful in, in, in my ways, lest I sin with my tongue, right? Lest I sin in speech. And so, I would give for my mouth, I would, I would cover my mouth with a, with a muzzle while the evil person was... Um, um, in front of me. Related to what I said earlier about the Psalms being ambiguous about their location, the Rasha in Sefer Tehillim is the perpetual problem of Sefer Tehillim. Who are we talking about? Are these wicked people? 
In some cases, it seems likely that it is that. In other cases, it's less obvious. Here, it seems like the Rasham might be another preoccupation of Sefer Tehillim is, I'm a believer. Everybody knows that. My life is going badly. There are people who are scorning and mocking me for my commitment to Hashem. Right? So, so I, I, don't, I, I assume here, and I'm, I'm underlying this calling assume as opposed to being confident, that that's part of what he's talking about. I wanted to be careful lest I give ammunition to those who mock those of us who believe in you. I think that's what it means. I'm open to hearing other suggestions. Um, and then Pasuk Gimel, Me'elamti Dumia, GPS uses, I think, you know, kind of older English here. I was mute and rendered utterly silent, right? And then a very elusive phrase, hecheshiti mitov, um, I was very still. No one really knows exactly how mitov works there. If you look at the first supplemental source, I think, I just gave you the pasuk in Yonah that I think that JPS is working with, where Hashem says to Yonah, vayomer Hashem ha'hitev charalach, right? God said to him, right, are things, are you so very, angry? Are you really this angry? So based on the strange use of mitov there, JPS here renders, I was very still. Hecheshiti, I was still. Mitov, very. I have to say, I am sympathetic to not knowing what that word means. I'm sort of skeptical that that's what it means. Um, um, Robert Alter, not sure of this either. I kept still, comma, deprived of good. Deprived of good. Um, NIV translation, not even saying anything good. Like, as it were, Milomartov. NRSV, this, by the way, is just to show you how hard this phrase is. I held my peace to no avail. I was silent, but it didn't do anything for me. All of these require kind of like an insertion of brackets with another word in it. Um, except for one translation, which I'm not sure I buy either, but it's like really interesting, by a um, contemporary evangelical scholar named John Goldengate, who translates this pasuk, I kept quiet more than is good. That actually is the closest translation of what the Hebrew words actually say. But, and then, okay, um, and my, um, my pain was just like unbearable. And then something really interesting happens, right? My, my heart was, was like heated with rage. My thoughts were filled with flames. And then the, the depth of the pain and the rage break through. And he says, okay, So I said it. Right? I was trying not to. And, and here, just, just step inside the psalmist. Forget about it for a minute, whether it's in the presence of God. Think about a moment in your life where someone has hurt you in really profound ways and they're there with you and you tell yourself, I'm, just, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just not, it's not, it's not a good idea. It's not going to end well. I'm not say anything. And then he's like, no, I, you need to listen to me. Right? That's the moment he's describing. It's like a profoundly human moment, a psychologically real moment. Well, the Bartha Bushoni, an altar, Kidarko, you know, in this sort of brilliant literary reading, points out in his book on poetry, um, that you that most biblical poems operate in couplets, and this poem is unusual that it op operates in triplets, and that the focus of the triplet often, most dramatically in Pasuk Dalit, is 
It's to surprise you by breaking what the first two couplets said. Right? Um, just, you know, I said I wouldn't say anything. Um, you think the reason is because I don't want to say anything bad to you, God. But actually, in part, the issue is I was afraid of getting in trouble with someone. Right? And then most dramatically, this one, right? My heart was, was, in, you know, was burning. My, my thoughts were, were, were aflame. And then, you know, you expect one more description of how much he was tortured. No, I said it. Okay, I said it. Right before the psalm begins to, to sort of explode a little bit. Did you, did, you, did you make this layout in triplets based on that? Reading? No, I think this is actually JPS's layout, which I think they, it seems to me, miss a couple of the triplet forms. Um, we can talk about that. I actually don't have it in front of me. I, I don't remember off the top of my head whether Alter lays this out better in clear triplets. Um, as I recall, in his commentary on Tehillim, there's less of his richness on this poem than in the art of biblical poetry, which is, this is one of his like model texts for how kind of poetic genius works. Yeah. So this is this text speaking to that moment when the Hebrew slaves cry out, and now they know they're slaves, and they and, and redemption begins. That that was a connection. I don't know that it's. Well, let me say let me say it this way. I don't know that it's speaking to that directly, but I think you can draw very rich parallels between those. Um, you know, the notion that something shifts in the moment when they cry out. Yes. Um, um, now, you can say, maybe another way of saying this that I think is really moving about these psukim is that there's two forms of suffering that are torturing this person. One is his actual suffering, and the other is his inability to talk about it, which are two dimensions of the suffering that this text is wrestling with. Like, I'm in pain, or I'm being persecuted, whatever it might be, we don't know that. And holding it inside, like my heart was consumed, my thoughts were, I mean, the, the images are amazing. I mean, my thoughts were aflame. It's an amazing image, right? Like, you know, you, you can almost imagine, like, someone, you know, in, in the process of a kind of psychological break of one kind or another, right? Where, like, just wish I could get my head to stop, right? That kind of image, right? It's, 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 it, it, in some ways, it really does remind me of a certain kind of psychic collapse, right? And it's supposed to be, you know, talking about your brain being on fire is like a very intense way of talking. It's actually the way some first person, I never thought about this until this moment, but some first person accounts of bipolar disorder that I've read talk about moments of right, being out of control as fire. Right? In fact, isn't one of Kate Jameson's books about, do you know who that is? She's a prominent professor of psychiatry who wrote a book about her own, kind of this amazing American story, right? She was a prominent researcher and, and treater of bipolar disorder. Um, while herself suffering from bipolar disorder and refusing to take her meds. And the memoir is about that, it's called The Unquiet Mind, which I read 25 years ago, I think. I really don't remember it anymore. But, you know, I think that her book about, like her more academic book, is called something like Fire in the Mind or something like that. So it's really actually apropos. Yeah? I just wanted to ask you if you thought that the echo of Aron Vaino, Aron is important there. Because here's a person who's mm -hmm. trying to do that, but ends up becoming uh, sort of immolated in the process of trying to do that. And it becomes an old Corbin, in a sense. Uh, that's your reading of what's going on with Aaron. Yeah. Well, that's my reading of what's going on here, maybe. Yeah, so I don't know whether the word Vaidome is supposed to, uh, you know, draw your attention to other Vaidomes. I mean, I guess you could riff on that. I, mean, I don't mean that negatively. I mean, you're going to get. Not sure. 
for whatever it's worth, and I'm not sure I'm right about this, um, I, the essay I wrote about Vayidoma Haron, I tried to play with um, the Semitic philologist Baruch Levine um, actually argues that Vayidom in that text comes from a different Semitic root, which means to moan, and that the history of Pshat on that text has it wrong, that Moshe tells Aaron be quiet and Aaron keeps moaning. It's a totally different reading of the text than you might imagine. Nice. Um, that's online if you want to find it on that Parsha. Um, where you can find the book. No, anyway, so, um, um, so I don't know. I, 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 it may be. It may be. And it certainly makes sense to take moments where someone is pained in silence and play them with each other. Right? Just, this seems like a korban in itself. Kamli bi bikir bi tibaresh. It's really, it's what Aaron does for a living. This feels like anger to me. Yeah, I'm not. I, Sorry, I, I'm not. I'm not persuaded, but I hear you. Yeah, go, John. So I was wondering how much like decision effects between what between this and what's happening with Joe, where he keeps his mouth shut in front of everybody else, and then he finally opens his mouth. Yeah. God says he can't do anything, so he's the reaction is, "Just leave me alone." Then, if you can't, if I can't know this, then just leave me alone. Yeah, so we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. I mean, it does seem to resonate with a couple of moments in Job. In Job. Yeah. So, okay. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I wonder if what he's trolling over is like an existential struggle in and of itself. Um, and in that way, if like an existential struggle in some way can be paralyzing because it's something that God is doing to you. Like the fact that man is breath is beyond this person's control. And I feel like that's in line with the kind of the sense of paralysis that it seems like he's feeling within his own body as his like mind is like a pinball machine, but his body is still. Um, and then I feel like when that person speaks out or when they're turning away from God in some way, maybe this is their chance to express agency and to be say like, hey God, I'm choosing this when they can't choose this existential plate that you're... So that's really interesting. So what I, what I want to do, is that okay with you, is to ask you to revisit that comment after we read the Pupsukim where he's doing something or other about reflecting on his own mortality. The question is, what is he doing in those Pupsukim? Because that will become very direct. Like, how does his contemplating his own mortality either soothe him or make him more upset or what in these Pupsukim? And then we can go back to what's the role of Finding agency in that, right? You know, because th th there's, I mean, there's a certain paradox in the history of spirituality where people often find agency precisely in their confession of their lack of agency. Think Alcoholics Anonymous, mm -hmm. right? Classic American spirituality. I'm powerless, and thereby I find my power. I know I'm, I'm being a little simplistic, but I, maybe not. So yes, let's 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 get to that. So let's read Pesukim Hey to Zion. Um, if you're cool, Donnie, keep going. Okay. Great. Okay. So here's a subversion of the genre again, although I'm not sure what it means. You would very much expect after he says the Barti Bilshoni, something like Admatai Hashem Admatai. You do not expect this almost philosophical contemplative request about explain to me something about my mortality. That is an unusual, you know, you don't expect almost the tone and the content here. You expect something else. And I think that that is, I don't know what it means exactly, but I think it's intended to be, oh, like to bring you up short a little bit, like, okay, what's happening now? 
Exactly. Could be a, like a Hargini, Naharo, kill me now sort of thing. Yeah. That's, so that, thank you. So by the way, so it's funny. So that is my understanding of this psalm, which until you said that, I have not seen anyone else say, is that what he's actually saying is, tell me when this will finally be over. Yeah, that's how I read that song. But, 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 so I'll tell you that um, um, many people read this differently. Um, I'll give you some examples. So first of all, one thing you just notice about the Pesukim, if the rest are saying the obvious, is that the images just pile onto each other, right? They intensify the question about when will this life of mine, which I know is transient, finally be fully over. Um, but here's like a couple of examples of this. And I, I'm, so here I'm giving you all Christian people because this is not the kind of commentary you find in traditional Parshanut that is more meta, um, right? I thought traditional Parshanut works. Richard Clifford, who's a prominent Catholic kind of Semitic scholar, he reads this in a way that I would love to be right. I don't, well, I, shouldn't, I, I should let you decide. Let me know exactly when my suffering will end, for human life is so short and unsubstantial that you, O oh God, cannot allow the whole of it to pass in pain. I mean, it's really interesting. Um, I'm not sure that the words actually ever come out and say that. Um, um, so he translates this as, Lord, let me know the term of my affliction, what the measure of my days is, that is the predetermined length of my affliction. May I know how I, was, how I will cease from my affliction. There's a lot of insertions of the phrase for my affliction in that translation, right? Which he never says. Um, um, you know, and, and when I read, you know, when I read this, I, you know, I was reading my notes. I said, how about something a lot simpler? I can't wait to die so this will finally be over, right? Which just seems to me much closer to the shot of the words. And I understand why someone might not like that, or from a theological perspective, find that to be like one step too far. Although, I don't know, I've known perfectly pious people who feel exactly that in the midst of unbearable illness, or, you know, like I'm not, or, you know, paralyzing depression, whatever it might be. So I'm not sure why we should shy away from that possibility. I'm not trying to be dogmatic about it. I mean, I'm, I'm opening to other, open to other possibilities, but it just strikes me that the obvious shot of it is more something about, I just want this to, to end already. Hmm? Sounds like emphysema in a way. Breaths are piling up on one another, and each one of them is painful. <laughs> or, or Christ on the cross. I mean, you know, when when is this suffering going to be over? I mean, the, the Catholic theologian would really feel what Jesus is feeling. Yeah, although, again, it depends, you know, so, you know, Clifford, a guy like that, Richard Clifford, who I'm quoting, you know, is really a hardcore Semiticist and a liberal Catholic meaning he does not have the inclination to sort of make it about okay, Christ. Okay. You know, where Christians have a hard time not doing that is when they read Psalm 22, right. which Jesus is quoting on the cross, right? right? So like there, it's like very hard to step out of being a Christian when you're a Christian writing on the Psalms. Right. But, you know, um, th there's another common understanding which I strikes me as like very pious in a way that I don't buy about this Psalm, but, which is... Um, you know, something like, teach me the brevity of my day so I can accept my mortality and thereby become wise and able to bear the absurdities of life. I mean, it works until verse 10 or 11. It meaning, works until meaning, meaning until this point, he's not being afflicted by anything but these questions. Right, exactly. So it's interesting. 
One of the interesting questions is, is this the content of his lament? Or is this what he starts wondering about because he's lamenting? I mean, right. You're saying the latter, I mean, which I think no, is right. Right, I mean, there's no external, there's no mention of like an external affliction that's just making him wonder these things. He's wondering these things, and that's why he has to like yell about them. Wait, say that one more time? I Meaning there's nothing like on the outside which is making his life difficult that he's complaining about. When is this going to end? Right, this, this is just life. Well, no, so that's really interesting. So, right. Until, again, until verse 10 and 11. Right. So, so one of the things that, I, I know this is not what you meant, but what, what occurred to me as you were saying it is, is part of what's happening in verse 5 is that he finally decides to speak, but even in that moment, he doesn't express his lament. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what he's lamenting over, he expresses his desire. He, it's like a different mode. Like, I just wish this would end already. And he's not yet ready to say, and I hate this, mm-hmm. right? He's not there yet. I don't know. You see what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's a little different than what you're saying, it's, but it's, it's similar close. between what I'm saying. It's right. It's close. Yeah. Meaning, I, I, I was thinking about it when I was talking about existential crisis because it doesn't seem like there's anything which is really bothering him beyond just life itself at this point. Well, I guess it depends. It depends what you think ne <laughs> ekar really means. Unless you get the pain of being alive, or as opposed to the pain of what I'm going through. Or the pain of just keeping you know, those questions quiet. Meaning he's describing... Yeah, oh no, so you, meaning, you, you are reading verse f- 5 as... Verse, meaning uh, he's, five. he's describing the experience of being quiet, and not asking these kinds of questions. He's not responding to some sort of external affliction. Ah, you're taking KV Nekar as, that's how painful my silence was, as opposed to, that's how painful my predicament was. That's very interesting. Is that sustainable as a reading? I was mute, right? Ne'elamti, I was rendered mute and silent. Echesheti mitov, u'cheevi ne'ekar. That's really an interesting reading, which I have to, maybe other people thought that was obvious. I did not read it that way at all. I mean, spent a lot of time on this psalm. I consistently saw this as, because I was being quiet in part, the pain that I was already enduring was overwhelming me. But you're saying it's the pain of being silent, which is part of his growing predicament. As I said before, he has this double predicament. What's hurting him and not talking about it? It's really interesting. Think about that. That's, a, that's actually kind of a powerful reading. Sure, just, 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 that was where my thoughts started to go when you, when you pointed out how odd it is that Hodiani is the, is the first, when he opens his mouth, what he wants is knowledge. And that makes it much closer to Kohelet in the sense that what causes me suffering is the, is the incomprehensibility of life altogether. You know, um, and that that sort of that makes it a much more instead of Kohelet being somewhat at some form of philosophical distance from that problem and giving you you know tidbits of wisdom about how to cope with it. Here's a person kind of in the throes of that real struggle, possibly. I mean, Avram's right when you get to the mention of like a plague. Again, I guess it can, you can read it two ways. There's actually a physical plague or some sort of suffering going through, or the plague is the plague of life itself. Right, or you can say, as many of us do in extremely difficult moments, the plague that I'm going through radically reframes my take and perspective on the world as a whole, right? You know, it's like saying to someone who's in the midst of deep depression, well, let's talk about, what are you currently not depressed about? On the one hand, for people that can be helpful, other people it's totally, what what are you talking about? This is what there is. You know, as good modern Hebrew would say, zemayesh, right? That's actually bad modern Hebrew, but you get my point, right? Uh, yeah. A morose friend who I remember when we were in college, I was like trying to get him, what's actually bothering you? And he couldn't articulate it, and I said, you're, you know, you're an existential hypochondriac. 
Um, and he punched me in the face, literally, at that point. Because, like, right, it doesn't, the conditions of your life. It was deserved. <laughs> it was deserved. But, like, the conditions of your life, and somebody in the throes of something doesn't separate, well, this is what life is, and this is what my situation in life is, right? The two, right, the two things right. exactly. merge into one. Exactly. Right. Right. Okay, right. So, so Pasuk Vav. Just wanted to make sure that a couple of things were clear. One is, I mean, just make sure it's in Hebrew. Fachot yamai, fachot as in hand's breadth, tefach, right? Which is, I think in, in, if you created like a, one of those charts of measurement conversion, the tefach is the smallest measure I think we have in biblical, you know, the biblical measuring system. Um, which presidential candidate was it who said that they wanted to use, switch America to the metric system? Wasn't that one of the things in the debate? You remember what I'm talking about? Oh, uh, Oh, Lincoln Chafee, yeah, exactly. So not really. I thought you were going to ask. That wasn't the guy from Maryland? And then, um, uh, it was just a funny moment. And then the phrase, ach kol hevel, kol adam nisav, is a very odd sentence. Um, it, it elicits the famous GPS meaning of heave uncertain. Um, um, they render no man endures longer than a breath. Um, I think, you know, it's something like, um, mere breath or futility is the standing of each person. Something like that. Um, Alter's comment on this is that the possible meaning is that though a man, he's trying to, I mean, you know, stick to this here, seems to stand firm and tall, he is in fact mere breath. Mm-hmm. Right? Adam seems to be mitzah, but he is in fact hevel. Right? And that, that is an obvious, you know, Kohelet. Um, Link. Yeah, Audrey? Isn't it also awesome? kind of another measurement? Like, if it's, a, I don't know where it is in the triplet, but the hand breath, to me, I, I saw it as sort of like another way of measuring length. It's just tefachot, and it's really just a breath. It's like a, a measurement me- of the, time. The measure of a minute. Yeah. Right. right. If, I don't know if that's all part of the same triplet. Maybe. Why is that different than what? Alter was saying? Maybe I didn't understand what you said. Oh, what did Alter say? No, no, you're building on what Alter said. Alter says that, you know, Adam Nitzab is sort of like a person who may appear to be tall and strong and firm, but even so, he's just Hebel, and that's what this person is sort of wrestling with and understanding. What's different is that that the breath is is a measure of time. Like, it's not tall versus small. Yeah, but then you have to wrestle with the word mitzav. Um, which yeah, seems to be Yeah, isn't it kind of like a brilliant poetic way to, like, so that the reader has in mind the idea of measuring, of quantifying? It's firm, firm versus ethereal. Yeah, could be. Could be. Um, not sure. Okay. Um, interesting. So, pasuk he and pasuk vav, by the way, have a nice kind of linguistic uh, word play. Chadel in verse 5, and Cheldi in verse 6. Chadel and Cheled. Chadel is, you know, fleeting or passing, and Cheled is a lifespan. Cheldi is my time on earth, in biblical Hebrew. Um, so Cheldi, Chadel, is like a nice wordplay, like my span is fleeting, or something like that. You could use that 6 as the answer to 5. Yashem Right, right. And like... Yeah, so the only question I have about that is, is 6 an answer, or is 6... A way of expressing of what? Throwing up your hands and or getting more no, or getting more desperate. Like I know it's hand breath, but when? Right? And is it is it an expression of greater desperation? Or oh no no, I know it's ending soon, 
doesn't feel to me like that because six doesn't feel like a resolution, given what goes on in seven. But 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 you may be right. Again, as I said, like this 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 paragraph is just really elusive. And now to your question before about well, maybe we're not there yet. Wait, I, let's wait. Let's hold it further. I'm, I'm okay. still thinking about it, but I think it might be yellow. Um, might be worth um, holding it for a second. Verse seven. Don, you want to just is take Sela over? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Is Sela important in some way? Is Sela important? So let, let, let me give you an academic answer as opposed to a, uh, like a traditional answer. Nobody knows what Sela <laughs> means. Now, usually people, I think that most scholars these, day, these days think that Sela has something to do with it's a musicological yeah. notation, yeah. like cue the musicians. And that that happens at moments of transition in the song. So one of the things that may be useful to you as you learn Tehillim is to, when you're kind of lost in the progression of a song, if you see a cella, it often marks there's some kind of transition coming. Um, you can do that you know, as you will. Um, Radak um, argues I don't know where because I've only seen this, actually, I'm embarrassed to say, in various academic stuff, that selah comes from the Hebrew words, the Hebrew root salal, which means in a raised voice, right? Um, I'm not sure how many modern philologists accept that as a derivation, but he's also taking it musicologically, but seemingly to sing. Um, I, wonder, you know, I, I wonder about it in the liturgical or performative sense, because it happens a second time, bo uh, both after a hevel. Yeah. Right. And so there feels like there's a big deep breath. There's a, um, right. there's a. Right. Right. I, 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 so here's, here's the feeling that I have, which, uh, I mean, this is kind of embarrassing to say because it's so not thought through. It seems clear to me that in Tehillim, the music is cued at moments that are very different than we in our cultural context would imagine music ought to be cute. You know what I mean? Like I think it's like odd to think, oh yes, I'm about to go deeper into my despair. Cue the violins. It's just something like, I don't know, I'm not sure I'm right about that, but it's, it's it, I'm often surprised by, it's not where I, in my limited musical whatever, would imagine where I would put the, you know, pull out the trumpet. I don't know what that means, but you know, certain kind of musical intuitions are probably culturally located. So anyway, okay. But I couldn't you also reiterate the terms of the illusion to heaven, the actual heaven, in the story, creation. Well, the opposite meaning, I would say that's why heaven has the name heaven. Mm -hmm. But they're maybe playing off with the idea that our life is truncated, just as his is, even though they may be. Yeah, you, you, you could say that. I mean, sure. I mean, a word, the word Hevel could be do that. But I mean, I think it's actually really striking that Hevel gets that name. He's named for the problem he represents. Okay. Right? His name is fleeting. Okay. Okay. Ephemeral. I'm not sure it means breath, but... Um, um, so yes, I mean you could you could I mean, right you, you know you could argue any directionality works both ways. The challenge that you know this is where source critics will sometimes begin to yell at literary critics. Wait a minute, why are you assuming 
that this text knows that text. Doesn't everybody know that text? <laughs> <laughs> the second word text that Selene brought it down. Okay, I'm sorry. For those of you who are going to be traumatized by this, let me just say <laughs> that in source critics universe, okay, this is like really, but in, in the universe of source criticism, the notion of Tzalem Elohim is extremely late. And the proof for that is, because if you have such a stunningly powerful idea, and it appears in the 11 chapter unit at the beginning of Rashid. Why does it appear precisely nowhere else in all of Tanakh? That is a classic source critical argument about Salam Elohim. It is a very, so they argue, a very late layer of Tanakh. No one knows about it. Here's another example of that, do that what you will. The genocide at the beginning of Exodus 1. Source critics always say, that is an extremely late addition into Shemot Aleph. Why? Because nowhere else in Shemot is there any reference to power trying to genocide the Jews. It's all about slavery. It's the first things. Right? If you have an idea like that, it's going to reappear. That, that, okay, as I talked about on Sunday night, there are all kinds of methodological and philosophical assumptions that underlines, underlie such a reading. You can buy them, you cannot buy them. But given that methodological assumption, the kind of source-critical methodological assumption and how you do source criticism, it's very hard to assume, oh, don't other texts all know about Genesis 1 to 11? Everyone would argue otherwise in the world of source criticism, pretty much. Migdal Bavel is taken as a critique of Babylonian empire culture. They're in exile. It's much easier, I mean, okay, I'm going to say something that is maybe totally obvious. One of the reasons why the people who teach Tanakh in like Yeshivat Haritzion, their notion of biblical scholarship is you read Robert Alter. Right? And sometimes you admit you read Robert Alter. And why do you read Robert Alter? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say something cynical. Why do you admit, why do you read Robert Alter? Because Robert Alter, secular as he is, is committed to reading the text as a whole. The finished product is what a literary critic usually works with. So you can read Alter. You can't read, you can't read. I mean, some of them read and don't say they read, some of them don't read. But like, you know, you're not going to read somebody who's like, oh, you know, let's do the fact that J and E are merged here. I mean, actually, this is a window into my very troubled psyche, but I have actually spent some time reading the various Tanakh people from the Goshen trying to figure out who's actually read that stuff and who hasn't. Because <laughs> you can sort of maybe figure it out. Um, but but Alter, they, they all have read Alter. It's actually what they kind of do. Or they've read Kasuto, who was doing Alter before Alter. Right? Because that's, because you're not breaking up the text. You could, you, I'm reading Moshe's literary skill. Right? So I wouldn't assume, unless you are alter, that, oh yes, of course, there's an allusion here to Tzalemel. I'm not so sure. I would actually read the other direction if I was a source critic. Hevel, it, the name Hevel is a riff on something else. It seems more likely to me, from that perspective at least. Um, I remember once one of the most disappointing moments in my teaching at Hadar was a student of mine had read Judy Klitzner's totally brilliant book, Subversive Sequels, okay? Classic example of a book where you can't figure out whether these are great literary readings or just stunning midrashim, <laughs> right? It's a totally stunning book in many ways. Published by you guys? No. Yeah. Yeah, published by you guys. Now, originally by JPS, as JPS is going out of business, right? So, Subversive Sequels. Subversive Sequels, it's a totally magnificent book in many ways. It's beautiful. Um, but at one point, one of my students raised her hand in the middle of a kind of Elul, 
and said the most beautiful thing. She said, here's the most amazing subversive sequel I just figured out. The idea of subversive sequels is, right, that later biblical narratives repair earlier stories that they find troubling. Okay? So, Sun raises her hand and says, you know why we have the two si'irim on Yom Kippur? Because the Yom Kippur Torah reading repairs the Rosh Hashanah Torah reading. We send one out into the desert, and we put one up on the altar, and it's animals and not our children anymore. Mm-hmm. And so Yom Kippur fixes Rosh Hashanah. Right. That's nice. So I said, wow, that's really beautiful. So then I called a friend of mine who is a fairly prominent biblical scholar, and I said, you've got to listen to this, right? And he says, yeah, gorgeous. P had never seen those sources. <laughs> and I was like, come on, right? Like, come on. I'm like, you know, let's say it's like, okay, but even in your universe, the redactor saw those sources, right? As I said the other night, right, one of the dangers is thinking the redactor is a moron, right? I mean, even if you accept source criticism, right? Even if you buy that stuff. Um, anyway, okay. Did we just say something? Somebody had their hand up. Is it you? No? Okay. I'm hallucinating. Great. Um, <laughs> fabulous. Verse 8. Oh, sorry. Did we read verse 7? Verse 7. Donnie, you're up. <laughs> So this is straight up Kohelet. I think I put this in your source packet. If, if it's you know if it doesn't immediately ring a bell, source number five, um, right? The Saneti ani et kolam alishi ani amel tachat hashemesh sheanichenu la adam sheyacharai. Right? I hated it. I was I was you know disgusted by all the work that I was doing that I should leave it for someone else. Umiyodea hechachamiyeh osachal. Right? And who, how do I know who I'm going to leave it for? Right? Right? And he'll, be, he'll get to do whatever he wants. Right? This is like, this is what I like to call the biblical assault on trust funds. <laughs> right? Like, so, yeah, this is exactly what verse 7 is. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Sorry. Um, um, okay. Go ahead, Vata. Go ahead, Dani. Right, Tokalti Lakahi, right? And now, what can I hope for, Hashem? Right? My hope is in you. And now you think maybe it's going to take a totally from turn, but it doesn't. Right? And it's interesting, like, it almost like subverts your assumption again. Tokalti, you know, Tokalti um, Lakahi, like, almost in, leads you to expect now. The classic ending, right? It'll be healed in the end. And then again, it kind of plays with your expectation, again, playing with the genre, I think, and, oh, therefore, I will now shout at you. As opposed to, therefore, I will now hope in you and take comfort in you. Right? It's really quite striking in that way. Isn't that like the, the man in um, Akot in the middle? Um, when he gets to Versailles, he says, therefore I shall have hope in you, and then goes right back into his lament. Yeah, well, so first, right, exactly. So chapter 3, and the parak usually referred to as Ani Hageber, of Echa, is really interesting in that way, where there's like a lot of, it seems like almost biting sarcasm in the way he addresses God. Um, yeah, well, you know, theologically, the turn here is essentially the statement that since my affliction is only from you, only you can fix it. Right? But I don't know if you will. Am I going to have to separate you two? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, okay, I'm joking. Um, uh, Donnie, you want to 
Oh, by the way, I also want to say something else about this, which is striking in a lot of Psalms of Lament. There is no proclamation here of his innocence. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you see a lot in Sefer Tehillim is the lament that I understand that I was punished for a reason, but really, this far? Which makes something like Psalm 44, which says, search me out, I didn't do anything wrong, you're totally welcome, you can look inside me, so subversive of the genre again. It's not, I did something wrong, but you don't have to punish me this horribly, it's, I didn't do anything. In fact, the undertone, literally, in Psalm 44 is, we follow the covenant, too bad you didn't. Right? Which is what makes it such a crazy, I mean, text. And here, I think, you know, this is really striking, like, you know, he doesn't say, I didn't do anything wrong. He says, really, you have to do this to me? And this goes back to what Ian raised earlier about, like, so how do you step inside some of this? Which, again, I hope we can have a little bit of time when we're done to, to zoom out of it. Okay? Um, Don, are you ready to go a little further? Sure. Okay, right, so save me from all my sins. It is always a challenge in biblical poetry to know whether words for sins refer to sins or their consequences. It is, I don't know about always, I shouldn't say like that. It is often hard to figure out. You always have to know, at least, that sometimes pesha or chet can refer to what happened to me as a result thereof. So is he saying here, redeem me from my sins, or redeem me from what has happened to me as a result of my sins? And is that ambiguity deliberate, or does he assume that it will be obvious? Because it isn't totally obvious to me, at least. Right? But it might be obvious to the lamenter. It might be obvious, right, exactly. Well, would it, well, I understand what save me from the consequence of my sins means. What does it mean, save me from sin? Save, I don't know what that means. Uh, Leif tahor birali Elohim. Right? Just make me good. Yeah, I mean... I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I often think Christians were much better at Jews, or certainly than modern Jews, at internalizing that strand of Tanakh that says, I can't fix myself. That's because Paul was obsessed with that. You know, I, I have sometimes said to groups I've spoken before, Shoshana, that like the biggest challenge for American Jewish spirituality, again, outside the Haredi world, is to really stand fully inside of the words, not the music, the words of Show us grace, because, like, we're nothing. We're busy, you know, having pulpit rabbis in Manhattan write books saying there's no Messiah and you are it. Right? That is not the theology of the Hebrew Bible. Right? It's just not. I, I personally find that, like, really troubling because it's... I don't think human beings should be deluded about what we're capable of changing. This is one of the ways in which I am a radical conservative among my liberal friends on this issue. You know, all this sort of, to me, very trite stuff about human beings can just redeem the world if we're just nice to each other. I think that that's just nonsense, basically. It's stupid in my mind. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be like, it's just, it's, and, and like, this is where conservatives tend to be, I think, too cynical on the other extreme. But that's like, you know what? How about a little sobriety? A little sobriety. Most solutions to human problems generate other problems. Right? The question is what, what the consequence of that ought to be. I'm not saying that, and therefore we should be fatalistic. I'm just saying we should know what we're doing and what we're probably not going to do. So, you know, I, I, and there's an important strand in the world of tshuva, literature and history of Jewish thought, that basically says, like, look, tshuva at the end of the day is extremely dependent on grace. By the way, in an interesting way, the classic liberal 
This is why this is not denomination. The classic liberal statement of tshuva is book two of Isha Halacha. So Levitchik's Halacha command, man as self-creator. Really? It's not man as self-creator. Sefer Bamidbar is about, isn't that tragic? I just couldn't change them. So they're all dead. I mean, I hate to be like this, because it makes me kind of miserable, but I think Tanakh is much richer than that. Soloveitchik is richer than that, too, in other places. Right? Halakhic man is what I would call the, the young Soloveitchik. Right? He's actually 44, but it's the young Soloveitchik. Um, and I, so I don't, what it means to be saved from sin, I think, is to have God change my heart. Which is why it's Shiva Utzvila Utzvdakah. That in that refrain in the High Holiday Liturgy is it's only through Shiva, but also prayer. Yeah, I guess that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, look, here's the thing. I think what Jewish theology always wrestles with, telling people that there are certain things they can't do for themselves is never allowed to be a prescription for fatalism. And just like, you know, let go and, you know, I'm not going to try to fix anything because the world should fix itself or God should come, right? It's, it's more, yeah. I should be under no illusion that I'm going to redeem the world, but I am going to work on making it better. Right. I'm under no illusion that I'm going to make myself into a perfect tzaddik, but I can make myself more of a person. By the way, if, yeah, I mean, for those of you who find this kind of interesting, you might want to, those of you whose modern Hebrew is, is you know, Good, Rav Shagar's book called, uh, the subtitle is Chesed O'Cherut. The book is called Shuvi Nafshi, right? It's basically about the history in Jewish thought, um, not the history of thought, that's not what I mean to say. It's about a series of portraits in Jewish thought of tshuva either as self-creation or tshuva is, oh God, please heal me, I can't do this, right? And sort of really playing out those two threads. And he's actually, because he's now an American Orthodox rabbi, very critical of Soloveitchik. Right? Totally willing to say, yeah, it's like a, not a great reading of the rock. It's like very interesting in that way. You don't so, find American Orthodox rabbis as a rule doing that so in, just to, in public. To extend that thought then, so then maybe just the, um, the non-specific Pisha'ai of, of verse 9, and you know, maybe also um, the Avonah verse 12, are just sort of an expression of the general failures of the human condition he's talking about in verse 7. Meaning the sins, you know, whatever the sins are, they're not specific, but they're just like inevitable failures of human life. Stop punishing me for them. I really like what you're trying to do. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> persuaded yet. I'm not persuaded yet. But but keep keep, keep come, come come at me. Come at me. Okay, Donnie, you want to read uh, pasuk tet? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Ve'ata, useful literary thing. Ve'ata often marks um, in Psalms of Lament a, a, a shift from complaining to asking. The Atah, and now Hashem, and it marked the transition. Right, this is a useful thing to remember as you're reading Psalms like this. I'm sorry, Donnie. Go ahead. Okay, no, please. Well, you want me to read Ted again? Um, extremely rudely, I want to make one more comment on Ched, and then let you read Okay? I also think it's important to note, I think Alter says this, um, the dramatic shift of verse 8 from man is nothing the days of a human being are fleeting and passing, but I have hope in you. Yeah. And that somehow, like, that is, this really goes to the agency question, too. Like, it's, it's actually, the hope that I can actually 
do something or be something might come from somewhere other than myself. What is seeing agency as itself a manifestation of grace? See, here, here's, here's what I would actually... I have sometimes thought about writing in response to Rav Shadar's book that I now haven't read in many years and should reread. What if actually the theology of tshuva ought to be that the chirut we have, what's important is to always remember that that itself is a chesed. Right? In other words, the, the, the grace of having the ability to change who I am. It's not instead of grace. That itself is grace. Right? You gave me the freedom. What you made of human beings is the capacity to reorient ourselves. You know, it's interesting, you know, some of the work in primatology in the last 30 years, led by Franz Duwal and others, you know, where we now understand so much about the emotional and even the, the trappings of moral life in animals. One of the things I believe, I hope I'm remembering this right, I once read Duwal say, Franz Duwal is a famous primatologist at Emory, written a lot of books about kind of like the emotional and moral life of animals. I think that I heard Duwal say once, or read Duwal saying once, you know, what I don't expect to ever find in other primates is the capacity to say, I really don't like how my life is going, I should change it. Mm. That that's a kind of level of kind of second order reflection that is extremely unlikely to be found. Yeah. Even though we found things like compassion, a sense of fairness, right? There's all kinds of things that the wall has found that have totally reoriented, I think, our understanding of what the animal kingdom is like. I hope it's the wall that I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting something to him, of him. Please, yes, Ali, no one to go on. That is your name, right? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, this is a push for the existentialist reading and also a potential answer for why, like, as an end within my whole lives. Um, because maybe, like, when it's saying, like, I could count on you, God, it's not complete, like, talking, complete on that agency, but there's also a surrender in that where it's like, um, what can I, I can count on you, meaning like I can count on the fact that you're, that you can't be contained, that you are infinite, that you are in a full, like, there's like an irony there, that like I can count on you, but you are not a solid. And like in that, like I'm an alien, but a resident within you, um, I feel like can be thread similarly. Okay, so, so the ending, let's get to, I like what you said. I, I honestly, if I could just think what the first part of what you said for a minute, if I understood it correctly, you'll tell me if not is that actually one of the things he's doing is acknowledging it's not just my days are fleeting, but my hope is in you. It's implicitly my days are fleeting, but in hoping in you, I'm hoping in the one thing that is not fleeting. You. Right? You know, I, I don't know that he's thinking of this parrot, but in one of Rabbi Soloveitchik's Shurim that was published by um, Avram Bestin, those two books called Reflections of the Rav, you know, it, it's like... <laughs> I mean, this is Soloveitchik's language at its most over the top, but it's, I think that's kind of what he's saying. At one point he says, you know, man finds himself something like alone in the world, bereft of an antic fulcrum. Right? It's like, okay. But <laughs> what that means, I think, is that I don't have a foundation to stand on. I realize that I'm fleeting and passing and I'm grounded, and, and I'm ungrounded, and that God, right, gives me, it's God alone. And that helped me understand Soloveitchik in other cases, because there are certain places where he describes tefillah almost like you would imagine a psychotherapy session. So why do I have to say it to God and not a therapist? And I think that his answer would have been, because your therapist is just as bereft of an antic fulcrum as you are. And the point is, from his perspective, like I want to be able to express myself to something that is enduring. And that's only God. 
I don't recall that he mentions this psalm there. Maybe he does. It's been a long time. But I, I think that that's the same idea. Somehow, I, I, holding on to God's status as firm. God, God alone is firm. And that somehow makes me feel hope, to use his language, tochelet. Yeah. But isn't part of God's ability uh, to also change, to reorient himself? Isn't that the, the basis for the hope of this prayer, to, to try to hear my prayer and my, my sh- inner shrieking so that you'll relieve some of this pain? Yeah, for sure. But again, it, I think it goes back to what I said earlier before. You're the only one who can relieve this pain. There's something here about God's permanence and omnipotence that is intertwined. But yes, um, by the way, and it's also, keep in mind here, it's not, um, it's very interesting, actually, if you listen to the Hebrew closely, ma kiviti Hashem he asks for a what, and he answers with a who. I don't know what that means exactly, right? Ma what is my, what is my hope? Is answered with a who is my hope. It's you. It's not anything, it's only you. I, I mean by that, it's not a thing at all, but a personal something, a personal someone, sorry. Yeah, is it possible that there's also some irony there in that like, yes, God is grounding because God is forever, but also there's something about God that is not grounding because like God created this existential fleeting reality and like God is not tangible and solid and static. Like, well, well yeah. So I think, I don't know if irony is the right word, and I think maybe it is, but I'm not sure, that you are the only one who is grounded, and yet I'm finding you unreliable. Is at, at minimum ironic, and at maximum perhaps something worse than that. There's a contradiction in my conviction versus my experience. I hope in you, please make that not seem ridiculous. Right? Something like that. It is, it is, I, I mean, if it's ironic, then it's bitingly ironic, I think, right? I think. Okay, let, let, let's, let's finish. Let's finish the thing, and then we can, uh, people can make more comments, okay? Um, Donna, you, you ready to keep going? Now I'm going to let you read the subject. Okay. Okay, so, right, again, we talked about that, the, the first part. Herpat naval tisimeni, do not, JPS, make me not the butt of the benighted, um, most common translations accept that. Alter accepts it, but then says, well, it's also possible to read this is, do not make me the object of scorn as though I were a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. Right? As opposed to, do not make me the object of the scorn of scoundrels. You can read it either way, I suppose. Um, okay, Pasuk Yud. One thing that is worth thinking about here, I talked about this on Sunday night, the tense problem. Mm-hmm. JPS renders this, I am dumb, mm-hmm. or I am mute, you could say. It is also possible to read this as, I was mute. Right? Is he talking about now, again, he spoke, but now he's back to being unable to speak? Right? Is he, is he reiterating the experience? Or is he saying, this is what happened, but now I'm saying this? Distinction clear? Mm-hmm. And the tense is there make you crazy. Um, to some degree, I think, you're going to choose your translation of these Tukim based on your conception of what's happening in the flow of the experience, because the words themselves are not going to answer this for you. Tenses are too difficult in dealing. And this is the second time this is doubling, because in verses 2 and 3, you also have a marti and an elamti. Mm-hmm. And then from the end of verse 3, you have a dibarti and now another elamti. And what do you think that means? What are you doing with that? I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like, you know, it's two things that are sort of repeating. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
Right, well, that's, you could say that's the fundamental then, tension of Islam. And then, and then and Islam Meaning, even his Amarti, um, which in the beginning was his silence, wasn't a real silence. He was talking about how silent he was. <laughs> right. Meaning, he, right. he was describing his silence. Right. It's, yeah, it's been, uh, that's a really interesting point. Arguably, that's irony. Although, yeah. I don't know if it's intended quite that way, but it's interesting. Um, I also just want to underscore something I alluded to earlier. Ki ata asita could just as easily have been ki asita. Ki ata asita, ata there really functions as the emphatic. Because you did it. Um, you have that a lot in biblical Hebrew in ways that I think are often elude people who knew modern Hebrew first. Because we often just often do that, like ata marta, you know, especially if your Hebrew is not amazing, you, you always say ata ani. But in biblical Hebrew, very often, if you insert the, those words, like ani, ata, um, it, it is to be understood in the emphatic. We're going to see that tomorrow, those of you who are, who are still here after lunch for my shir on Psalm 103, ki hu yadayitzreinu, as opposed to ki yadayitzreinu. Because God knows our inner world. Which is what allows Christians to say things like, he knows us better than we know ourselves. It's actually a reading of that pasuk. Hu yadayitzreinu. Right? So, if always pay attention to the, you, when you find words like that, yes, it's possible to overread words like that, but I think that that's, usually we have the opposite problem, we underread them. Okay, Donnie, keep going. Um, right? Take away your, plague is probably good, your chastisements or something. No, plague is better. Right from the, the blows that you deliver with your hand, um, I am coming to an end, dying, perishing, something like that. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on the beginning of verse 12 because it's hugely difficult and I want to make sure we get some time, at least a few minutes. Oh my God, I what that was. Um, right, as punishment for sin, you chastise a person, and then that really interesting phrase, consuming like a moth what he treasures. This is like a good example of like, yeah, really, right? Like, we have to just like destroy me because I sin? Well, it also recalls the flame of the first mm. line. Interesting. No person is more than a breath, or... Right, no person is more than fleeting. And then, verse 13, now, notice, by the way, GPS's paragraph break. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is a straight-up petition. This pasuk is really interesting. First of all, okay. Hear my prayer, Hashem. And my cry give e to... El dimati al teherash is literally really interesting. Do not be deaf to my tears. Yeah. Um, that's an odd literary locution. Do not be deaf to my tears. You would say do not be blind to my tears. Right, 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 right. Tears are quiet. Mm -hmm. Unless dima here is a synecdoche for crying. Am I using the word synecdoche right? Or I think. Could, he, could it also be like a deliverance for punning attempt at suffering like him? Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Could be. Could it also be saying, 
Okay, and then, so this is interesting. Now, on the one hand, this immediately, I think, for the reader, I think, is intended to conjure up which is verse 6 in your um, packet, right? Why can't the land be sold forever, right? You are always just um, sojourners and temporary dwellers with me. But here, so I wanted to suggest two possible readings of what he's saying here, and they're very, very different. I really like the second one. I would like it to be correct. I'm not sure it is, but okay. One possibility is, I understand that my, my living in your presence is temporary and conditional, and you might not always let me be here. The other is, I know that you love the stranger and mandate the stranger being protected. You have to help me. Those are two very different readings. Do you follow both of them? Mm-hmm. Right? I think you can defend either of those. That yes, second one is sort of like when, when, they, when Chazal make God follow Halacha kind of thing? Yeah, but it's making, it's making God follow Tanakh. Right. Right? You are Ohev Ger. Latinto Lechem Vesimla. Right? Varim Yud Perek Pasuk Yud Chet or something like that, or roughly. Zulatha doesn't know P, however. I'm not sure why we're willing to credit that he knows P here but doesn't know P over with Selim. Wait, what? <laughs> Isn't Vayikra P? Okay. First of all, <laughs> let me say this about that. I don't do this. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> since, since, what's his name? Um, I forget his name. Mil, uh, what's his name in Israel? Um, no, 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 no. Um, the guy whose dissertation made Milgram radically alter his whole Leviticus approach, the Devon, Israel, Israel, Israel. No, I don't know if it's P or it's H, and I'm not that exercised by that question. Um, look, I think, I assume that even if you don't buy the Vayikra Chavhei, I assume that the Shmot Vayikra Devarim obsession with the status of the Geir is familiar. It doesn't depend on Vayikra. I was saying Vayikra because I think it's a case where God says, everyone is a gear with me. But I don't think you need that in order for this either reading to make sense. Um, I'm just being a good nick. I'm just saying, <laughs> if, if, if you're not willing to, I was just thinking that Selim is ruled out, then it felt like the Gerbeth Hoshav reference might be as well. But I, I mean, if you, but maybe the two texts are, you say, different because... Yeah. First of all, I didn't say anything about my not willing to do it. I'm just saying, you know, Ian asked a question that was a source group, but I said, you know, I'm just not sure that you should assume that if that's your approach. Um, I mean, it is really interesting, right, that tell The only text that come close, comes close, really, to tell Elohim is the Hillen Perek which imagines a person ruling the world in a similar way to Rishi Aleph does, right? That's like the only text, like, what you yeah. That's the only one I can think of that is really clearly, like, riffing on similar ideas, but if you're already playing this game, I don't know what Hillen Chet is from either. Um, Listen, I'm, I'm saying he's a game to Yeah. And also worse with Avotai, because that's the Maybe that's a target. Yeah, could be. Could very well be. Especially since we have, in various texts, as we saw on Sunday night, this, this notion of being connected to the notion of Hello, hey, Avi, or Hello, hey, Avotai, right? You know, yeah, could very well be. Could both um, of your readings be, couldn't they coexist? 
You mean in tension with each other? On purpose. Yeah. Could very well be. Could very well be. As, as I kind of said earlier, I'm becoming skeptical of my impulse to always do that. Right? I mean, for me, it's like if there are two possible meanings there, of course both, both intended. I feel like it's a little bit like becoming a satire of myself. But I, I hear you, and you might very well be right. There's another thing. Because in, it's in a. The transition, it, it's, in the transition is a common between alien and resident. And in the, in the, like implying that I'm alien in general or in the world, but resident with you. Um, where, whereas I think that both of your readings um, imply that there that those things coexist. That those things. The, the yeah, but Toshava, I, I, I'm sorry, Rachel, to yeah. interrupt you. I think Gare and Toshava are meant to reinforce each other, not be contrast. Resident. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. But, the, but in the English, it looks like they're they're meant to be in contrast because of the comma. I'm not sure that's what JPS intends, although that's really interesting. I think JPS means it to be almost, what is it, a positive phrases? Yeah, I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Uh, a, I resonate. I mean, Rabbi Soloveitchik reads that pasuk as about contrast, right? That's what he uses famously to say. Jews are part of the culture and not part of the culture. We are Gerim, but also Toshavim. I don't know if Toshav always means that. I'm really a resident in the sense of I live here as opposed to a temporary resident. I'm not sure. So I don't. I, I, I really like what you're doing. I have to think about whether it works in the Hebrew or whether it's like a n- one step removed. That's not sure. But but it, yeah, but by the way, I also think it's interesting that Geranochit Imach. That Imach is interesting, like a stranger with you. Um, which is that? By the way, that sounds. Is that isn't that what Yikra says? Kigirimatem. It sure seems like he's talking to that. Um, last pasuk, um, which is worth talking about for a long time, at 344. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so in light of the hope that is expressed, right, in verse 13 and 14, listen to me, care for me, don't be blind to my tears. You don't accept, again, this subversion. You don't expect the next verse to be, so leave me alone for a while. Why don't you? Right? It's a very odd next step. Look away from me. Right? Um, did I put this in the source sheets? Eof Perik Zion? Yeah. So I don't have the time to look at that now. I would suggest look at it. This is the only other place in Tanakh where I think where this is explicitly said, where Eof says in Pasuk Yutet, could you consider maybe dealing with someone else for a while? Because I'm finding this relationship really too much. It's really fascinating. And I, is that an allusion to it? Uh, it could very well be. But again, the, the extreme unusualness of demanding God's, or asking for God's inattention. Really striking, a striking subversion of the pathos of so many Brachima Tehillim. Um, I should just mention, there's no agreement among philology types about what the avliga means, which would be good to know. Um, JPS that I may recover, although I think we get there again, the meaning of Eve uncertain. Yeah. Um, Ray Shenlin, quoted by Robert Alter, that I may catch my breath. NIV, that I may rejoice again. NRSV, that I may smile again. It's very hard. I mean, it's, a, it's like very frustrating. I want to know what avliga means. Something positive, though. I think so. Yeah. Why do we think so? Those of you who are philologists, this is the kind of thing that, like, in my genes, this is what you do. 
right? Mm -hmm. You spend years working through every Semitic root that sounds like Avliga until you find out what Lahavlig means. Um, what does it mean in modern Hebrew? I think Lahavlig, am I correct with this? In modern Hebrew means to um, restrain oneself. Havlaga becomes a term in the Zionist movement in the 19... When Arab terrorist attacks begin and the Haganah calls for Havlaga, and the right says, what do you mean Havlaga? One of the greatest moments in the history of religious Zionism, this is really about this class, but whatever, I can't help myself, <laughs> is when Rav Herzog, the Irish-born chief rabbi of Israel, says, anyone assassinates me, please, 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 I beg you, no revenge. And the right in the Israel government says, oh, our chief rabbi is an Irish Catholic. <laughs> It's an amazing moment in Zionism. Rav Herzog says, no, I'm just, you know, I'm not interested in doing this. Anyway, so Havlaga, I don't think Havlaga means that in, I don't know if anyone thinks Havlaga means that in the Bible. I, I don't know, I've never seen that. Um, and then, by the way, it's worth saying as an ending, So most, I want to say that most academic types, I assume Parshamim would not feel comfortable with this, traditional Parshamim. Most academics would say that what gives this text part of its force is there's no conception of any kind of afterlife here, right? Before I am gone. You have some Bible scholars who talk about, well, maybe, but, you know, there's some Bible scholars who argue that the belief in Sheol suggests that, you know, the end to earthly existence is not fully an end. Most people don't kind of buy that, I think. Um, now, I just wanted to mention to you, this occurs to me as I'm saying that, so Clinton McCann, who I mentioned before, who's a contemporary Bible scholar, he says something about a different psalm that I find interesting to think about a lot. He says that one of the paradoxes of psalms of lament is that the person is, finds themselves in a situation where the only source of their hope is also the source of their very torment. And that that's the predicament. And it's excruciating. Because God, I'm so frustrated with you, but only you can save me. So, what, and that's you almost feel the sort of like being ripped apart by that. And only if God removes God's gaze can the person recover, because the gaze is the source of the blows. Exactly, gaze. God's gaze here becomes not love and attention; mm -hmm. rather, God's gaze becomes God's chastisement, serenity. Now, so here's the discussion that I had like wanted to have, and we sort of had pieces of it along the way, but let me just sort of leave you this, and then happy to hear what you guys to say, you can have the last words, both of you. Um, is that, so I think it's really interesting, like here's just an enormously powerful text, it's powerful literarily, it's powerful to study, it's powerful to think about praying, how's that for a, uh, you know, a hedge. But I, I, I would be interested about it, if anyone wants to write me their thoughts about this, I'd be grateful for them, because I find this really interesting and confusing, like, what do you do if A, you don't think this is how God works in the world. And what do you do, B, maybe which is a more complete version of A, you just think like, well, punishments? I want to cry out to God because life is unfair and horrible, but not because I did anything wrong. So can I stand inside the eye of this poem and pray this? Or am I destined to feel, no, I can learn this text and wrestle with my outsiderness from it, and my in but I can't. I can't say I need in these words. I, this is a question. There is, this is truly just an open-ended question. And I, I think for those of you who are thinking about, you know, I hate doing this because I said we don't do this, but those of you who think about teaching texts like this, to think about, like, 
how would you help people have a conversation about that? What would that look like? Or how would you invite someone into this text who says, you know, look, someone could say, I believe in omnipotent God, I just don't believe in that kind of providence. So I don't know how to pray these words. Let alone someone who says, you know, I don't know, I went to RSC and then I'm a Kaplanian. I find this kind of, you know, Kaplan's disdainful formulation, our ancestors believed. Some of you heard me say, right? I always imagine Heschel knocking on the door and saying, excuse me, sir, who are you calling an ancestor? <laughs> right? I mean, you know, right? Like, who are you calling an ancestor? You know? But like, so, yeah, and then again, like, would you say to someone in the hospital, I know you don't think your, pun your illness is a punishment. I don't think so either. But here's a really moving sound that does assume that, but you can get into it anyway, because I I'm asking, like, I, I think these are really interesting questions. Uh, let me let these two incredibly patient, long-suffering people speak. And then I'm happy to hear people's thoughts. We're, we're ending. Awesome. <laughs> 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 I didn't the time was at all. Okay. Truncated. Okay. Um, I didn't the time was. I'm sorry. So this isn't a slimy argument that, like, look away from me. It's maybe an expression of agency and not dispelling God. Because I think that the speaker... That's what Brueggemann meant by ego strength before God. That's agency. Sorry, we didn't, we didn't get a chance to come back to that. Yes. Right? If I say to God, look away, that is a dramatic self-assertion. I'm sorry, I totally interrupted you, but I wanted to say yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the reader has this awareness that God is holistic, so like like God is in the, the remedy and in the illness, and in that way, like they're acknowledging God's presence when the reader's saying, before I pass away and I'm gone, like I think in that way, like, God, I know that you're still here, but you, like, me dying or me being a breath are truths that are, like, beyond my control and are things that I have to surrender to. So, like, they're you, but I also don't have agency in them. So maybe when looking away from me is saying, like, acknowledging the fullness of God, but being like, okay, but now I want to enact choice, but I still know that like within this larger thing you're still going to do what you're going to do. Well, that is kind of, in a way, what I was gesturing towards when I said something about how in the acknowledgement of lack of agency, a certain kind of agency is discovered in a way I do not seem to fully understand. I just had moments of getting that and had moments of people getting it in front of me, right? And it's about, like, I'm never going to be the omnipotent God who controls everything, and I know that. And yet somehow acknowledging that, I'm able to assert myself again. Something like that. Last word quick. I'm sorry to do this okay. to you, but I just think really it's late. very interesting that at the point where we want him to tell God to look, he asks God to hear his tears. Mm. And then in the next verse, he is telling God to look away. Hear but don't look. That's really interesting. Yeah. And like, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Wow. That's a great reading. Really, that's a really high. interesting. Wow. Hear me but don't look at me. Wow. Thank you. I don't know what it means, but it's beautiful. Yeah, I, <laughs> I wonder if he's embarrassed. Don't look at me because I'm ashamed. Interesting. I, I'm, I'm more persuaded by Rachel's reading, don't look at me, because looking at me is tied up with punishing me. I don't know. Shkoch, thank you. That was great. Thank you.